Derek Arp, the founder and chairman of CSA and your CSA podcast show host. And today I'm excited to introduce my next guest in the ongoing security leader interview series. Our goal is to bring a human side to people in leadership positions all over the globe in different parts of the industry. And uh, today we've got a, a, a unique and a well-known guest uh, to be able to uh, delve into his story and find out more about Chris Blask, the Global Director of Industrial and IoT Security at Unisys. Uh, Chris, if you know him, is, you know, I thought about uh, writing down jack of all trades, master of many. You know, the old phrase is, um, I modified a little bit, because the truth is, he is a man of many talents and has had uh, uh, his finger in so many different projects and uh, some for work, some for passion, and, and oftentimes a mix of both. And um, he's an entrepreneur, an inventor. He's definitely an evangelist. He's a visionary. He's looking ahead all the time. He's a sailing enthusiast. We're going to touch on that later with an exciting project. Uh, he's a boat builder. He's a landscaper. Uh, he's done so many different things. In fact, when going into, into your LinkedIn profile, Chris, I had to expand, expand, uh, you know, five more entries, five more entries, more than I've ever done for anyone else in my life. So welcome to the show, Chris Blask. Thank you. My work here is done. <laughs> Yeah, just go to LinkedIn, read his profile. We're done. We don't really need to do this recording. No, now let's do it. So, Chris, I always uh, I always say that uh, security uh, people of all types are some sort of modern day superhero, and they all superheroes have a backstory. And so, let's get into your backstory. You know, where where's Chris from? Well, you know, I, I was born in California in 1965. Uh, moved to California when I was one, or uh, into Colorado. Uh, went to elementary school there. Hopped to. Uh, uh, Chicago, a suburb of Chicago in, late, in the later part of the 70s for seventh and eighth grade and then to Toronto, Canada. So I ended up being a Yankee in Canada going to high school. Mostly finished high school, but not quite. Got a job uh, in running the bailing room, making mountains into molehills in the plant that made all the Sears catalogs in Canada. So I did that for six years and then got married, moved back to the States, landscaped, as you mentioned, you know, landscaped at Greenville Tech in Greenville, South Carolina and took classes at night. I got my first computer job, and and uh, it's uh, been all downhill from there. So prior to um, the work like that you started doing in Greenville, was there a technology thread that goes back before then? Were you introduced to it? Did you see it? Or like, nope, that was something I was on a different path, and then it interjected. When did technology uh, come into play? Sure. So it started all along. So uh, my dad worked at IBM in Colorado um, back in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, so Christmas for me was taking IBM punch cards and folding them and stapling them and, and spray painting them gold to make punch card wreaths and so forth. Playing with with my dad's, you know, flowchart template, right? And drawing flowcharts for, for the sheer heck of it. You know, this CSA, you know, we'll talk a lot about infrastructure. Looking back, it's, it's interesting because early in my career, people would say, you know, the typical, oh, you must have been a hacker. And, it, and I would say, no, but it's not really true. When I was 13 years old, I was in you know, 13, 14 years old, 1978, 79 uh, here in Ontario. Late one night, I was walking along some train tracks and I found a piece of pipe, you know, conduit. It was about staff length and I'm, you know, walking a stick, walking along the tracks and I see a road crossing up ahead and I see a couple of bolted wires in the in the tracks. And I looked up and down and I looked and I took the thing and laid it across the tracks. Nothing happened. And I leaned on it, rubbed on it, get a good connection and ding, 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 ding. So that was probably my first infrastructure hack. Yeah. <laughs> And a fun half hour making that go up and down and making the drivers crazy until I yeah well, something happened and I decided to run very fast. But was that any kind of light bulb thing for you? Were you were you really intrigued by that, or it just happened and uh, along you went in your early formative years? I was just curious if that if that stirred anything more than the, that day. It 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 
really more in retro retrospect, you know, because yeah. as we know in our lives, everything stores everything. And to the to the point of this, you know, how we got here, people of of, of a given age in this in this sector all got here nonlinearly, you know, because there was no cybersecurity class you could take anything. Right. Um, right. And, it, and so we all came from funny places. And you look back and it's things like that, social engineering, you know, cognitive security, which is the real term, but in, in our space we've blanketed that over with those two words, social engineering. I did that all my childhood. Went from being the smallest to the biggest kid in school in one year, right? You know, so I looked older than I was, you know, in my in my mid-teens. And just with attitude, walking past security infrastructures in hotels in downtown Toronto and getting to places you're not supposed to get to was just a natural part of doing things. You know, figuring out how things worked. You know, my my ask my mom, right? You know, coming into the kitchen when I was a, a toddler basically with a screwdriver taking the phone apart. You know, so all of us hackers have been hacking things all along. The cybernetic part of it is just another layer. Yeah, sure. Uh, and if I remember right, you take a break from schooling and you do something that's industrial, but not maybe what one would expect before you go back to schooling again. You know, my parents split up when I was 16 and I got a full-time job at, at a plant making Sear, the Sears catalogs, all the Sears catalogs in Canada. And the bailing room, when you get that nice, you know, the outside of a book is straight because they cut the edges off and it gets sucked up and goes somewhere with a lot of dust in it. So I, I did that. I was the youngest full-time person at 17 in the history of the company and did that for six years. And again, very interesting to the supply chain thing. You know, the, the supply chain security is occupying a lot of my time now. And I find it interesting with my background, a bill of materials is a very visceral thing. It's that piece of paper on a skid and so forth that says on the skid are these things. That's so why I know that whole process is just woven through manufacturing and distribution and everything. So as we all wrestle with this, complicated cybersecurity, you know, global supply chain thing, you know, my thought, which, you know, last year, which seems to be turning into a thing now is that, you know, the system's already there. You know, we just make minor modifications. You know, I love the OT space because, you know, cyber people always think that they've just created everything. And you find out that, you know, human culture has been going on for many, many thousands of years. And a lot of these systems are already in place. And all we did was put a, put a chip in it. So uh, you're you're in that environment, which is is kind of interesting if you trace back to where you are now to that, like you just started to do. There's a there's a there's a learn a lot of learnings there, right, about these processes and things that that even even today are useful to you. I think I'd like to tease out, you know, especially for our listeners who are potentially maybe doing something, you know, like that. They're 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 at the early part of their career, not necessarily doing what they want to do forever. You made some changes. You went and said, "Okay, I'm going to go get some more schooling. I'm going to finish GED, get some schooling." And and you went technical. You know, talk about that that decision matrix because that's something where people are today. They've got to make a decision. What am I doing next, and how do I get there? Sure. You know, I'm a parent with three kids. You know, 18, 20, and 25 years old. You know, as so I'm going through the same process with my kids, and you know, by 23, you know, 22, 23 years old, I'm thinking, "Oh my God, I've, I've missed everything. You know, my high school dropout, never did anything, never been anywhere." My wife and I have been together for a number of years at that time already. We got married, changed context. You know, we've we've, we've moved quite a lot. Uh, I've moved a lot all my life to that point, And we've moved a number of times, you know, our almost 40 years together. I think part of the answer to your question is moving on. You know, Night at the Museum, you know, that, that great line from Dick Van Dyke. Now, moving on, you know, sometimes you have to look at a situation and say, all right, you know, this, I can see the future in this one. I don't really like that one. Let's change context. So we moved, you know, to South Carolina, got a job, you know, landscaping at a college, you know, took a full load of classes for two years. Ironically, I never really sat down to figure out what classes go together to get a degree. Uh, so I have uh, enough 
credits, you know, the 4.0 and all that good stuff to get two associates degrees, but I don't have one. Uh, but I did get a job. And in all that, I didn't take, I only took, I think, three technical classes, Fortran, COBOL, and an introduction to computers. You know, I think it was history of art, public speaking was one of my uh, favorite uh, classes in that. And it's all, you know, technical college, a two-year college. You know, this is in, is in Harvard, but it's the same work. You know, sit down, figure things out, get into a structured environment. So many of us hacker types, you know, are, are very unstructured, right? And quite often we embrace that. I like to do both. I don't play to your strengths. You know, as you say, I do a lot of different things, but I try to do the structured environment so something comes out of it, like education. You know, put yourself in an education environment, take classes, whatever they are, you know, develop your interests. If you want to get into technology, the history and appreciation of art has as much to do with my success as learning how to program in COBOL. You're a tr true renaissance man. I know from your story that you go from what you just described and not long after that, you're teaching, you know, you're, you're an instructor role. So, you know, not long after what you just described, it's an amazing story. You're teaching other people some aspects of technology and talk about how that how that occurs. Yeah. So I got my first through the co-op program at the, at the university. I got a job running backup tapes at a little data general bar yeah, This made systems for lumberyards. Fascinating, you know, a little industry by itself. Within six weeks, my boss quit and I ended up with his job. And all of a sudden I'm the internal. So I'm learning, you know, at that point, I didn't really know much about computers, but uh, the Xenix you know, the 3D6 was out, you know, was, uh, uh, the data general had their first Unix var variant. So I learned up on, on Unix real quick. And uh, as you say, you know, in that, when I worked there two years, and in that time I was land still landscaping at the dean of the college's house and taking class for a little while longer and teaching at the college, you know, teaching Uni Unix and C and all these other other things that were, that were interesting at the time. And, uh, and that, you know, teaching and working there uh, led to my first job in OT. So I was hired actually as a Kelly uh, temporary employee at General Electric in South Carolina, in Greenville, where they make uh, power, uh, turbines for power generation. But yeah, turbines, right. I've been there. Right. We have a CSA chapter there. And and a good friend and advisor to CSA is Rob Gary, who's in charge of cybersecurity for the GE Power. So, you know, that heritage goes back a long way. You know, I, I, I love, love an introduction because back in 1990, I was hired to manage the shop plant floor network which was a dog's breakfast. 60% of the systems were down, the terminals were down all the time and so forth, but it was pretty easy to fix that. At the same time, General Electric was rolling out a global video conference center network. Greenville was the 26th site. So while I was, the first couple of weeks, while I was getting the plant floor under control, these installers were ripping out offices and building this James Bond 007 uh, tiered seating, big monitors, a long oak desk, you know, everything but Dr. No and an evil, you know, and a white cat. And, uh, so I hung out with the installers and figured that out and basically took it over when they left. And since I wanted to, you know, I had the plant floor and the video conference center, I wanted to do video, mobile video from a quarter mile away across the plant. I connected the IT and the OT networks together as one does. So I connected the OT network to, of course, the internet. And it worked. Yeah, a little roadie box rolling. It's feature rich. Look what we can do. Well, and, and it's, you know, lessons and everything, right? So, so there was this one German machine we had on the on the on the floor and it broke. And normally, you know, in a, in a case like this, we'd fly an engineer over from Germany to, to work on it. And instead, they drove the engineer to a local G GE location in Germany. Well, I got my mobile video conference gear together and I had a headset on and a camera and I crawling around under the underneath this machine. And he's telling me what to look at. You know, and he diagnoses the problem, local engineer fixes it. So instead of millions of dollars, you know, dollars worth of downtime, you know, it's a couple hours. In video conferencing. 
Did I break security rules to do this? Yes, I didn't know about security at the time, but you know, this is the abiding lesson in security. If a company can save millions of dollars and stay in business and be competitive by doing things, and we say they're not secure, they're doing those things. It's our job to figure out how people can do things they're going to do anyways, but do them securely. Oh boy, you just hit one. Um, I'm always looking for nuggets uh, in these sessions, and there's always multiple of them with each of you guests that have been doing this for so long. And that is one right there. I, I, I've i seen this play out, and I've certainly been able to kind of be at 30,000 foot and see people reacting to a business leader making a presentation like, here's what we have to accomplish. And the, the hardcore security person, you know, uh, later uh, talking to other people saying, that's crazy. What you just said is so critical, right? The things need to move forward. Success needs to happen. And it's not security for security's sake. It's security to enable some sort of mission, right? And that's hard for some security folks and engineers. They're like, nope, this is how it works. It's ones and zeros and it's binary, right? And instead it's like, well, we're going to have to make some compromise. We're going to do the best we can while accomplishing a mission. Yes. Yeah. And, and increase, you know, improve things over time. You know, if, you know, the world is what it is. You know, our job is to be realistic about that. You know, and, and you know, like, again, love the OT crowd because OT engineers understand this, right? You know, interesting thing over the, decades, you know, as, as cybersecurity people encounter OT, as they tend to get really excited and say, oh my God, you know, someone could die. Now say that to a, an electrical linesman. People actually die doing that in the real world. And if the power goes out for 7 million people, the odds of someone dying are pretty well 100%. But you know what you do? You deal with it. Deal with the situation you have, you know, make it no worse, make it better, improve it, put it on a path. Your job isn't to uh, have some purist opinion because you're just going to be replaced by somebody else. The system is still there. You know, yeah. it's not gotten any better. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, let's talk about, so there's, there's this early o OT exposure. There's obviously now technology exposure underlying, you know, programming and, and, and networking and things. Where does security, you know, you've got, you know, we couldn't even possibly touch on all the different things, projects and companies you've, you've, you've involved yourself with over the years. Where does security come in? Has it already come in where you're already talking or is it later where it's like, oh, I'm, I need to fundamentally start working on this aspect of all this stuff connecting together? It's interesting because it was right after, basically. So 1990 was was that General Electric video conferencing OT thing. Fascinating. You know, one of the one of the OT nuggets that really stuck with me, the combination of the two, while I didn't, you know, have the, the you know, decades of experience, obviously, in OT at that point, because we had the video conference center, all the cameras and VCRs in, in the plant ended up aggregating in my space. And we built the first world's largest fuel-driven motor while I was there, the prototype, the GE9000F. And since I had all this video gear, I did a documentary from the beginning of the age end, you know, stage by stage, you know, making all the parts and assembly and so forth, and interviewing all the operators. So I got to know everything about the the, the system. You know, again, the pragmatic realities. You know, we were neck. You know, at that point, GE was fighting neck and neck with Mitsubishi for that market. In short, we won. Barely because we were innovative and and quick and we got things to market. And our first deal just before I moved back uh, moved back to Toronto and got wrapped up in security was to Tokyo Electric Power Company for a billion dollar deal against Mitsubishi, right? Because we had done all these things better, faster, cheaper in a very American way. And you know, there's a sub thread story down there we can expand sometime. Fascinating. My boss was part of the Apollo program and he you know, explaining that to me as a young guy at the time. But yeah, you know, so I moved back to Toronto. And got a job in a little company, a little technical company spinoff, uh, some NCR employees that had hacked some code, you know, come up with a 
drivers and we're selling disk drives and so forth. Highly profitable, but cheaper than than the than the OEM. And they had an inter- internet connection, had a, had a UUCP connection. So as one does, I found chat groups, you know, talk.politics.miscellaneous and so forth. Ran into Timothy Timothy McVeigh before he, you know, you know, blew up in Oklahoma and yeah. Yeah, I met my first Nazis and had the first, you know, conversations in depth on these sort of things. And and it, it just struck me what there was a moment when there was one of the Mars probes uh, that didn't make it, you know, blew up in orbit. I think it was it was a feet instead of meters calculation, one of those cases, I forget which which mission it was. But there are all these jokes in the media about space, you know, there's now there's space junk circling Mars. And Psy.space was one of the Usenet groups that I liked looking at that one. And the people that built the thing are all talking to each other. And I'm like, and I would get into the conversation and, you know, and all of a sudden I'm having an email chat with this guy in Cheyenne Mountain and it's his and his boss's job to track all the, the space. And I realized that I've seen him on TV. He says, yeah, but every year the media, you know, comes around and, you know, there's some space junk uh, thing. I'm thinking, how on earth do you ever find that person without this, without the Internet? And you can't. You know, the answer is just you can't. And I, at that time, when my first, uh, uh, so my favorite phrase, you know, inevitability curve. You know, it's like, well, everybody on earth is obviously getting on the internet. You know, back in those days, you know, no, 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 this is just like, no, no, everybody, everybody, right? Yeah, it's only and, for geeks and academics. I mean, it's not going to no. be mainstream. America is not going to get online. Oh, yep, they did. Right. <laughs> and the, the, first, the, the first bit of security actually happened before uh, the firewall thing, but the good times virus, right? You know, which was an email, you know, for all the listeners, there was no ex- executable computer code. It was an email that said, hey, there's this you know, email going around called the good, you know, it'll say good times. There's, if you open it up, it'll delete your hard drive, tell all your friends. So the internet was effectively brought down as everybody forwarded that message to every news group on the planet. And in those days, every reply was nested and threaded, you know, a little greater than signs. So there was just these rows and rows and rows of greater than signs where people were saying, stop forwarding this, don't reply. And at the time, my, you know, my... My one contribution was, it's not really a hoax, it's a wetware virus. You know, somebody wrote code to transmit across, you know, electronically that gets, goes to a CRT and into my eyeballs and down the optic nerve executes my brain, makes my fingers move. And, <laughs> and all the knowledgeable people at the time are like, no, 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 it's a hoax, it's a hoax, don't confuse the issue. As I say, since then, it's been social engineering. You know, all of human sociology from a cybersecurity perspective is social engineering. And in, in reality, it's cognitive security. And we're just now starting to see we're experiencing the advanced capabilities now and sort of the beginning of that market that's really denoted by the good times virus. Yeah, uh, that's I mean, that's some of the formative stuff right there. So you I think you end up taking around that time period uh, security roles. So you're not right. just not a tangential part of what you're doing. You 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 suddenly shift in there and it's like, you know, now I've got a security like this is my mission. Yeah, so it was as cliche as the Chinese restaurant. It was Clyde Stevens and Paul Hunt. Clive's about my age now, and uh, Paul's an older guy as well. And uh, we'd been selling Rockwell Net Hoppers and Livingston Portmasters, the early internet providers, you know, building their stuff and we're selling the gear. But every time you sell a Net Hopper, which is just a little box with an Ethernet and a modem, you know, plugging in RJ11, RJ45, and off you go, the customer would call back up and said, it doesn't work. And you talk to them and find out they use the same IP address as IBM or they don't know what SMTP is, or they don't know what DNS is, or, you know, so it's not that the box didn't work because they didn't understand things. So we're sitting there talking about it and said, we need to, you know, we need to make something. And, you know, a little cl- classic diagram, a little cloud on the outside, a little couple lines for a network on the inside, a little box in between. 
you know, a little bulleted list. You know, it needs to have a DNS server, it needs to have an FTP server, it had a gopher server. The web wasn't really a thing then. And, you know, I was sitting there talking about it and I said, well, it's got to do security. It's the only thing between you and there. So after lunch, I learned the word firewall because firewalls already existed. The firewall toolkit was out, but firewalls were a million dollars a year and there were you know, like a hundred in the world deployed and they're all services. You know, you build something following that inevitability curve and thinking, look, everybody's going to get on the internet. Every organization needs a firewall. And therefore we need to make an appliance basically you can just boot up and install and it does a good job. So that was the borderware firewall server. By the time we released it, the web was a thing. So we put a web server on it and the bit of claim to fame, but, you know, shared, you know, with three, you know, two other groups, but uh, more or less in how this works. You know, I was talking to some, you know, old fart kind of my, my age now. Right. And he's like, no, the internet won't work. There's not enough IP addresses. And I did a quick gopher search. I was like, oh yeah, oh my God. You know, there's class A, there's only 254, you know, and then IBM has one and we're going to run out by Wednesday. And I ran into my boss's office and I said, John, 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 we're doomed. You know, I'm sorry. I bet your little company on this, on this thing. And it was, it, the internet's not going to work. And he went bad night. He just, John Alsa, and he just, he just said, look, I found that when there's enough demand, things get done. And in the next 15 minutes, uh, standing on a whiteboard with, with Andrew Flint and Amaya Elgunde, we invented network address translation you know, from scratch because, you know, just like, well, we got, we're building this firewall thing. It's got two ethernets. One's got to have a real IP address, you know, quick search. It's like, oh, 10 dot, you know, 10 dots, non-routable. Perfect. 16 million addresses put it on the inside. Can we build a table somehow? Right. You know, looking at the datagram. All right. Yeah. You know, how do we build a table? And John Mays, who invented PICS and Tony something, I always forget his last name, uh, wrote the RF, RFC all at the same time. Because it was just time. Yeah. You see this over and over through the industry, right? You know, that, you know, no, 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 you can't do that. But everybody's going to do this. Well, no, you can't do that. And there comes a point where it's just time. And things get worked that's out. Another, that's another potential nugget. You know, you, you're using it in a specific example, but it's it's a principle, right? That you could be in other problematic areas where people are wrestling with thorny issues right now, right? And say, oh, it, you know what? It's It can be solved. Even if we don't know necessarily how to do it today, it can be solved. And that you 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 lived through that in a, in a formative way that uh, became, you know, a fairly mainstream thing. Oh, and, and a habit, right? You know, this you know, cognitive security and supply chain security are my two biggest issues right now. You know, you start to put these things together and say, you know, take an inevitability curve. If you say, as is quite, quite common, that, you know, cognitive security can't be solved, we're always going to be in this world where we don't have a shared reality and we all argue about whether or not the sun rose in the, in the East or the West today. And you extend that out of the future and, you know, long period, tens of thousands of years, if that is fundamentally true, then for the rest of, you know, human existence, we will always live in that state. And if that seems extremely unlikely, then it's probably not true. You know, at some point in, in the future, we will have solved this us or our descendants will be standing there saying, Oh, that's how we did it. You know, the, the inevitabilities of economics, the inevitabilities of sociology, how people want to live, you know, all sorts of things. I've been known to have an awful lot of optimism and, and to, you know, when things are really chaotic, getting really excited, say, oh, my God, there's a chance to do something. Yeah, and sure. It always comes down to that, right? You know, it's like at our moments of despair, we're like, oh, my God, it's always going to be like this. And you just say, oh, right. Is that literally true? Always, always? Like forever. You know, hundreds of generations will never solve this one. Oh. Well, if that's not what you're saying, then there is a solution. Let's History disproves that. that. History disproves that. I think yeah. this is a very, as a lifelong entrepreneur, I, you know, I love this uh, philosophy you're espousing, which is at the darkest hour, at the deepest part of the, the pit is opportunity. 
And, uh, and I think if we've got people, you know, all throughout our listenership at, at, at all stages of their of their career lifetime, but this is an important message anybody can listen to, really, and say, oh yeah, that that is a mindset that I can I can take, and that my team can take as we go into a problem. Is it is solvable? Now it might not be solvable easily or by us today. You have to acknowledge that in this theory or theorem. Sure. Um, but it is solvable. It is solvable. Right. Well, and, and, and you know, it's 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 kind of a simple thing. If you know, when someone makes an assertion to say, okay, is that a hundred percent? And if it's not a hundred percent, then it's not a hundred percent. And for the Rick and Morty fans out there, you know, we're a geeky crowd. You know, we want to talk some quantum quantum physics and multiverses and so forth. You know, <laughs> if anything that is not completely a hundred percent, not ninety nine point nine, you know, a million nines, but a hundred percent, there are futures where that happens. You know, and, and whether that's, you know, literally true or, or, you know, string theory says it's true or whatnot, for our purposes, it's fundamentally correct. You know, if you did this a million times and it's a one in a million chance one time, that's a, that's exactly what's going to happen. So our job is to, you know, in life, you know, in, in our careers is to say, okay, if it's 90% likely to screw up, let's only focus on the 10% because then maybe we have an 80% chance of hitting that 10%. You know, you narrow down to, you know, the, the possible paths that include, you know, the desired futures. So security is now right there. You're looking at uh, you end up at Cisco working on Pix Firewall. Is security from then then forward is that is that locked in and, and everything subsequent you know is is got a security flavor or do you take any side detours or no? Now I'm in the channel. Yeah, it, it, it's been security ever since. I had opportunities yeah. you know to to do different things, but it's just fundamental. Yeah, I, I love the space. It's intriguing forever, and if you can harness its its application you know you can have a great career make a lot of money you know do the things you want achieve your goal whatever it is um so we so if if i'm in that right we're talking 20 25 ish years that you've been security thin on your mind 28 at least you know there's 92 was probably the the original firewall idea um yeah but yeah so we sold that company in 95 what my uh, my two best resellers were uh, a company that went Net Partners that's now WebSense, and a company in Utah uh, that almost bought Borderware, but in the end didn't. But I joined up with them anyways and uh, set up the first Trend Micro distributor, uh, the first WebSense sales, uh, um, you know, various things in that space. Joined uh, Trusted Information Systems (TIS) Gauntlet folks briefly before they were bought by McAfee. Then ended up at Cisco. And took over. I was actually the Sentry NT firewall was supposed to be the thing. We killed it off immediately. The picks. I had just written this great paper with Fred Avolio, great guy, not naming any names, but just saying the pick sucks, right? And then I was given the option. I was like, oh my god, it was two years late uh, in releasing code. Everybody hated it. It was end of life. Just a little bit of trivia. The picks firewall was end of life in in uh, I think about October 1998. So we ended up having a Skunk Works Black Ops thing. And revived it and brought it back, and you know it was. You know, I have no. You know, the Cisco ASA is still out there. It's sort of three billion dollars in 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 my era of, of influence and so forth. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. I have some memories. We, you know, my very first company was a, a threat intelligence company before anybody ever used that term. And one of the things we showcased, like, hey, we're writing some vulnerability threat information around Cisco Pix firewalls. If you have one, you put that in your profile. We'll send you the intelligence that has to do that. And that's circa two thousand. So you're saying that it was grandfather or, or sunsetted years before that. It's so funny. <laughs> well, it was supposed to be killed off, right? You know, we yeah. ran, you know, it was yeah. an epic story, right? You know, the Intel stopped making parts. We were down to one platform. 
the picks 515 was the yeah. was the uh, uh, phoenix out of the ashes. The picks 506 is the Damien project. He's my my oldest, my son. Uh, we've literally cut the sheet metal of a 515 and a half. <laughs> it was just silly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that 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 was an interesting era, of course, with uh, you know firewalls. It, that it, and this is why when I'm at Unisys now, I realize that uh, while I was thinking that the firewall market was over, like by 97, 98. Um, at that point, no one on earth had ever said the word firewall in all of human history, which is interesting because I could have sworn we'd heard it a lot and I've said it a lot. But on, you know, speaking of, you know, quantums and strings and so forth, statistically, no one had ever said the word. word. There's 8 billion people. And I found out that from 98 to 2002, you could go around the world saying to CIOs that a firewall is a thing you put between here and there that does stuff. And that was news because it takes years to even talk to billions of people yeah so you know similarly with iot right now the last year um i've been asking everybody i know that not not in the industry doctors lawyers cab drivers anybody else if they have ever heard of iot no one has oh i love that sample and i would have bet if you'd asked me to bet i would have bet that that was your response right you know so you know things on an inevitability curve things either they're not, it's a fad, blow. or it goes along like this till right about the point that the people involved are sick and tired of it. And that's when it starts. And firewalls, obviously, you know, are, are a thing. SIM is another, you know, and threat intelligence, you mentioned ISAC's information sharing. Yeah. Each of these in my career are things you see coming along and they're just about talked to death. All the experts are tired of them. And that's really, you know, day 0.1, just when it yeah. begins. Yeah, that does play out so many times. I, I have, you know, war stories as well in that same area. But those of us in an echo chamber, which if you look at cybersecurity people, you know, in the grand scheme of how many people that is in the world, it's an echo chamber, right? And so there's terms traded back and forth and considerations and things we should care about, things everyone should care about. And why doesn't everyone care about that? But you you just, you, you know, that's another nugget, another walkaway value thing. It's like, okay, we've got to frame, even within our businesses, we've got to frame our uh, our issue, or our opportunity, or the thing we want to talk about, in try to like, okay, what what is the hat? Who the person I'm talking to? What hat do they wear? What language do they use? They may not be thinking about this, or talking about this, or concerning themselves with it only, or if at all, at a very peripheral level, they aren't in our echo chamber. They don't go back and forth and talk about all these things. They have other concerns, legitimate concerns in their realm. How do I cross over? How do I translate? Well, the yeah, as we're discussing here, it's good to have interests outside of your profession, whatever they are. And you find all sorts of tangents and relationships, you know, the, the, the economics of security, you know, it, it turns out that just telling people they're bad doesn't make them do the right things. Um, that's not, human psychology doesn't support that as a positive thing. I, I know I'm shocked too, but you know, so in the late nineties, for example, at Cisco, um, I met as we do, I've, I've gathered, you know, friends and colleagues along the way, Stu Phillips, uh, uh, iterative colleague, you know, since, we're talking to him as early as a couple hours ago. And, you know, he wrote the uh, the sales model for Cisco and for Cisco and, and security. And it's basically, you know, hasn't changed since. And that's how he sold billions of dollars for the stuff. Because, you know, there's reasons you buy Cisco and there's reasons you do VPNs. And they have very little to do with your, you know, cryptographic configuration of your nano scale thing. They have a lot to do with not getting fired and being profitable and being competitive and not losing a competitive edge to other people. Now, when you can line things up and say, people like doing something, 
and, and and this is you know again talk about the maturity of our our market our our, our segment this is obvious this is sales 101 right you know people will spend money on things that they like and if you want to make them more secure you know a lot of it comes down to how do i line up with what they're actually doing so Stu's uh, the example i love for the uh Stu's sales model back in the days was vpns people who use vpns uh cost less money uh, they work from home, they work longer hours and more productive, which makes you more profitable and competitive. Now, I could talk to you about triple des encryption, but you don't care, right? Come on, throw, use the word blowfish. That, that's just an exciting term. Right. Yeah, we, we love it. You know, I, again, I geek out. I'll, you know, give me, give me, a, give me a, a coffee and a topic and we'll talk all day but long. You, but... you gave the exact example of terminology that resonates with the audience, a business audience, not the terminology that may be exciting or interesting to people in the, you know, that are deep in the, in the technology, which is exciting to anyone who's working on a thing. All that is, it's just about how do you get out of that and get above it and, and say, okay, what do I have to, how do I have to communicate with other parties, which maybe have to be different. And that's, I think that's a, that's a career path input for a lot of people would say, I want to move up. There have been speakers at many CSA events who, uh, you know, over the years that have touched on this topic, which is like, if you want to move up, learn to translate, learn to talk, uh, you know, another language. And so uh, people might say, well, how do I even begin to do that? Well, obviously, re reading, reviewing, listening to people, mentorship. There's a lot of I find that the security community over the years has been just a super supportive community. And that many people, if you're listening, you're like, oh, I couldn't reach out to a Chris Blask or to any of the guests on this show. Many of them have said the contrary and said, well, actually, you can reach out to me and uh, you can you can have a cup of coffee with people. Well, when we're not in COVID um, and people will share advice and say, yeah, here's how I went about building my practice. Here's how about I, how I built my budget at a large company by speaking the board's language or the CEO's language. And I, I you know, I think that's so critical. Well, you, you talk about mentorship. So uh, I mentioned uh, working at General Electric in the 9000 F. It was a 300,000 horsepower, 150 ton turbine. Awesome. And Walt Wren was my boss. And he'd been a longtime uh, GE employee, part of the Apollo program. And again, so I had all the cameras. Uh, I videotaped a, the, the, the construction of this, this uh, device, the prototype. And the lower casing was all built. And there were, the rotor was all built. And the day we're lowering the, the rotor into the casing. And everybody's around, executives, you know, white, white shirts and so forth. And it lowers down, lowers down, lowers down, does not fit. And this is bad. You know, this is a billion dollar project, you know, global yeah. competition, life of the company and everything else. And I'm videotaping all of this and the, the you know, that this three people get together, you know, and I, I don't really know exactly who they were, but I'm assuming, you know, chief operator, you know, chief engineer, uh, engineer, chief architect, right. And uh, uh, of the system. And they talk for about five minutes and the, the, Chief engineer guy uh, walks over there, big, huge guy of overalls and so forth, picks up a swear to God, Wiley Coyote wooden mallet. And, you know, with just carpenter of God's strokes, you know, swings this thing at the end of this billion dollar machine, pounding the living crap out of the end of this rotor and just sets up a good rhythm and keeps going and keeps going and it stops, puts it down, signals the craner operator, lifts it up, pick, puts it down, it fits. You know, you know, it's just very close tolerances, a little stiction, vacuum welding that leads in you know, vibrations. And we're walking away from there. My my boss, my mentor, Walt, said that right there is the difference between America and Japan. You know, so because we're obsessed with Mitsubishi at the time. And he's explaining that if, if this happened at Mitsubishi, everyone goes home. 
And the next day, the top chief executives begin the process of determining the fault, working back through the system and making the changes and going forward. Where our approach, which is much more hacker to our to our point here, is that the people who know the most about it spend a reasonable amount of time, a couple of minutes, you know, do you think it's worth beating the living crap out of it with a hammer? <laughs> and, it, and the net result was that GE ruled that market for decades. So there's a lot, a lot of practical applications of all this. You know, I think about Walt an awful lot. Right, you know, it's mentorship and, and being a mentor and being a mentee. Has that played out in your in your path, your story? It has. You know, I, I've been really fortunate at this point. You know, I've, I've uh, a number of people, you know, that I've never met. You know, have done their PhDs based on things I've written and have gone on to be, you know, to, to you know, folks who would know. That's just good. And, you know, I, I, I you know, some of some of this. Yeah, I, I think age now, I've got this gravitas. I'm, I'm mid-50s, but I was always the youngest. Youngest in all my family in all directions. My wife's family. I skipped years of school. I've always been the youngest. Of the old-timers, I'm sort of the young one. You know, my closest partner in crime is Fred Cohen, who's almost 10 years older than me and coined the term virus. All right, but one of the nice things about being this age is, you know, there's a certain seriousness to it. But mentorship is one of those things that goes all the way. You can be a mentor at 16, right? You know, it's, it's more a habit than something you earn over time. You know, are you willing to take some time to to help the whole thing forward? And it's really mentorship is tied in everything else we're talking about here. Do I want to be the star? Do I want to you know be right? You know, or do I want to get things done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, I'm looking at your profile. I'm looking at those Cisco years, and I see, you know, VP of Business Development and Marketing, co-founder, uh, VP again of Marketing and Sales, founder and CEO, Chief Evangelist, faculty, VP of Operations, ICS advisor, chair, vice chair, founder, CEO, senior partner, board member, chair, director, Cybersecurity Research Institute, operational technology architect, director. Global Director of Industrial Cyber Cyber Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity Unit says, you know, this is a resume that is obviously not not very common. Uh, you, you've you've been deeply involved in so many projects and initiatives, and and uh, and, and and people know that. I mean, a lot of people know that. Uh, if they don't know your name, they know things you've touched for sure uh, at an intimate, foundational kind of early, you know, formative. Stage and like you said, the nat you know nat tables or the 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 network translation. You know, if you look at all that and all the things you've shared, you know, is there advice if you were sitting down next to Chris, young Chris, right now across the table with coffee? I know your chosen uh, chosen beverage. What advice would you give him going looking into the security and specifically into the you know anything related to the controls, operating technology, IoT? You can free 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 roam as you like, but. What advice would you give to that person, you know, you know, today? Well, you know, some of it will sound sort of harm, harm rock, but know yourself. You know, to be clear, this is the advice that I give to everybody, you know, that age of myself in those times. But, uh, you know, the, the, you know, play to your strengths. You know, I, I am uh, not surprisingly some constellation of, of uh, letters and acronyms, you know, on the spectrum. Right. You know, I, I, I see everything is connected and, you know, very dirt gently for the Douglas Adams. Uh, fans, everything's connected, everything else, and it is. Give but a beautiful like, mind. Give a beautiful mind, Chris. I don't put any yarn on the walls, no. But, <laughs> uh, and specifically, not. And that's part of the uh, whole segment by itself. But no, you have to stop yourself from getting too ridiculous. You know, part of part of the things that I've that I think is related to my past. You know, being a high school dropout, being on my own, very young, and so forth, is that I don't think I ever really believed I had that much control over things. 
And I think as engineers and security people and professionals and so forth, you know, and, and to be, you know, frank, you know, a lot of, you know, affluent, you know, fortunate, we tend to think that we, we can just make things work. And the reality is that no one has that much control. You can't be smart enough or powerful enough, or there's just, that's just not how things work. Keep doing the things that, that interest you, you know, look for where you can make a difference, so you can actually have influence, you know, develop those things. There is lots of lots of folks who are, up, you, know, you, you know, know a lot of the same people who are just fantastic in our industry who are very, very focused, you know, and it, for somebody young like that, you know, I would say, all right, you know, run with it, get three PhDs, take it to such an extreme limit, you know, that, you know, that is what it is. But for me, you know, what plays out well is this, you know, odd narrative path where everything's connected to everything else. Because we're reaching that point in the industry and the fact, you know, that you that this organization even exists, that industrial cybersecurity is at the stage that it is. You know, it's not more evidence that we're on this path where all of these systems, you know, to the inevitability curve uh, perspective, we will have solved these issues we're facing because we cannot sustain them indefinitely. You know, we have to take threat intelligence and tie it to, you know, the sensors in aqueducts. So that we know if there are socio-political forces that are driving risks associated with physical security and cognitive security and cybersecurity and all these things, and everything's related to everything else. You know, our job, uh, assuming it's a it's a job and not a hobby, is to identify where which organizations and and sectors of of, of interest are at what stage. You know, so they can move down another step. You know, the OTIT integration. Yeah, you know, the air gap. Right. The the diminishment of the term air gap over time tells you as much as you need to know about critical infrastructure, cybersecurity as anything. Yeah. You know, just an accurate view of that would tell you, you know, what can be done. Yeah. I've seen some of those word studies over hundreds of years, a word that was super popular in the 1800s. And now we don't use it all. And you're right. You pick some words that are well, you pick you just did the opposite. You picked a word that was hardly ever used firewall and how much it's used. And now you said, here's one that was used a lot and it's going to be, you know, is already being used a lot less. And though that is an interesting thing, the kind of the study of that, that aspect of word use. And it does show, it does, you know, show evolution, right? Right. You know, so today, you know, the last three to five years, you know, ITOT convergence, air gaps and so forth, you know, the, the resistance five years ago is effectively gone. It's like, all right, you know, we understand that I'm the process engineer running this plant. I've worked here for 25 years. I would like to finish my career here and not have the company go out of business. Our competitors are reducing costs by adopting all this IIoT stuff and, you know, having better visibility into, you know, the process itself. So I know I don't really want to have all this IT stuff in my OT network. However, I like to have a job. Yeah. Okay. You know, now we're at this point. You know, you could beat your head against that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But now, you know, it's late 90s, early 2000s. One of my interesting little truisms that I uh, ended up living by at, at Unis or at Cisco was if you're a Cisco account team and you want to come to me with some question, your customer gave you about firewalls, I'm not answering you. You know, you go to the next customer because it's 1999 and everyone on earth is buying firewalls. If somebody wants to, to ask you how you split the atom of the encrypted thing, <laughs> say, that's great. I'll get right back to you and leave. Right. Yeah. Now is the time to just install a lot of firewalls. So now we're at this point where we can do things in critical infrastructure that lots of people knew we could do, you know, should or perhaps, you know, could do 10 or 20 years ago. It's, it was, you know, and so there's a lot of cynicism that built up around that, you know, so, well, I've tried this and it couldn't get done. It's like, yeah, but again, in the future, it will have been done. It seems today we're at that point where there's enough companies who will actually pay for it, you know, that we can actually get a use cases and figure out exactly how it works. 
so that you know over the the next you know 10 15 years every other organization on earth does it yeah and, and, and so it's so simple things like the like the fact that nobody argues about air gaps anymore you know that tells you that is the biggest piece of strategy for anybody in ot cybersecurity now the the supply chain security you know supply chain is, is a fascinating one the digital bill of materials consortium the alliance foundation project um being launched next month uh, that came out of a conversation I had with Mehdi Antazari at Unisys last year. And it's another inevitable, it's this crux, it's like Nat. You know, we can't go forward very much farther at all where we have no idea. You know, there's no definitive, not even a clue what's inside this microphone. You know, what hardware, software, chips, who touched it, who put it together, no idea. Now, if I'm using this microphone on a spaceship, I really can't do much better than that. You know, that will not be that way 100 years from now, not 50 years from now, probably not 20 years from now. And as it turns out, software bill of materials, S-bombs, you know, a lot of people have heard of that. Uh, there's 10 years in the Linux Foundation, two or three years in the Department of Commerce, MITRE, and various other places coming up with taxonomies. You know, what is it I write down? There's policy frameworks, uh, Bosch and the EU, EU Council and others announced the Digital Trust for, uh, Forum in February, that is a policy framework if you understand GDPR, you know, the privacy laws in Europe, and you understand that a company like Bosch would like to exist in the future selling IoT devices into European cars without being sued to death by the data being moved around, then the data trust form, uh, a digital trust form policy framework is fairly obvious. So what the DBOM consortium did was put together a bunch of big companies like us and public entities you know, from different countries and agree on some place to write all this stuff down. So, you know, all of supply chain security is three questions. You know, what are you writing down? Where are you writing it down? Who gets to read it? As it turns out, in the last 12 months, I think I'm safe to say, and I'll say it anyways, you know, but I think it's, it's demonstrably true at this point. All the pieces are in place. It's being done now. Now, we're living in this world still today where you might know, look much like the firewall space. It's like, well, not everybody can have a firewall. Not everybody can have an internet connection. Well, yes, you can. You're just thinking yesterday's, you know, so... Today, we have no idea. I can't tell you what's in this mouse or this microphone. Those days are about done. All sorts of things have been driving down that path. You know, the the opaque supply chain, it, we're at the very end of that. Ten years from now, we're going to say, you remember back in those days, you'd like buy a camera off Amazon and had no freaking clue, you know, who made what chips and firmware in it and no way to find out. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, well, we built systems on that and we don't anymore. Yeah, critical systems. I mean, uh, yes. uh, systems help that help that help human life has been tied to. <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. Uh, but it's, well, it's you're right. You're talking about a fundamental shift going into this. I mean, security by design. This idea of like, oh, what if we started security way back here? You know, what if it was part of the instead of the bolt-on, instead of something that we're adding later? Which is, of course, what we've been. Anybody who's been in this industry for two or three years, like we have, it was bolt-on. It was all bolt-on. Now it's like, okay, what if we fundamentally thought about it at the origin of a new product or a new service or a new whatever? And that's that's where we have to get. There's no question. Well, there's two things you learn in that. You know, um, one is yes, that's a good idea. But I think as the other one is part of the abiding thread here is even if you could do that, even if security people got every you know unicorn and pony and got everything we wanted, it turns out security is more complicated than that. And yeah. this you know takes you into cognitive security. You know, cognitive security and physical security have been around for thousands of years. We have very uh, mature ways of dealing with those. You know, the one is physical and the other one is sociopolitical, right? Uh, control the media, whatever. You know, this is nothing new about that. And military contacts or intelligence operations, you know, in our lifetimes and in our era, you know, in the last 100, 150 years, 
all understand how that works. And we're at this, we're again at this point. So I mean, fundamental changes come, you know, all, what is it? There's a saying, you know, things, things happen very slowly and then all at once, right? You know, the supply chain security has been coming for a long time. It has to be solved and it will be, and you can see the shape of it. Uh, cognitive security is, oh, that's right. We're talking about the difficulties of, of securing things. So even with all the technical security in the world, we get back to the good times virus. You know, you asked me to send you an email, you read the email, it ran in your head, it made you do things. You know, there's, I can't encrypt that anymore. You know, it's, it's doing what you want. You, you can see the, the stack coming together. You know, cognitive security, for example, the, the AMIT framework, A-M-I-T-T, -T, um, Sarah Jane Terp, Pablo Brower, interesting people behind that, but we're now making sticks documents out of misinformation, disinformation, influence campaigns. Uh, the Enthos solution, give a call out to a Tom Ridge company, uh, is an interesting threat intelligence company that can make sticks documents out of behavior of, of small political groups. You know, that there's an environmental group, you know, that in this country, this has right reason to be cranky. And, you know, some of the members have had a lot of conversations with China or the states or whatever. You know, things that you might want to know in, in a social political context literally turned into a sticks document that you use, you know, to integrate, you know, with your monitoring of traffic on an OT network. You know, all of these things come together in the end. Yeah. Well, you, you've, it's funny, my, my closing question often, you've already started going down this road and maybe you'll add to it or add other elements besides the ones you've already started to mention, which is, you know, asking you to look ahead. There's oftentimes people saying, they're either saying it uh, consciously or, or they're aware of it. Like, how does one become a recognized expert X, you know, 10 years later? It's a you know huge issue. Everybody's talking about it. And there's these few people that seem to know everything about it. Well, they started back here. So if you could predict and say, okay, if you delve into this pot, this pot, or this pot, you're going to be very happy X years from now that that's your specialty or that's an area that you really know what's going on. Good, good direction. So uh, I think some of the things are things we talked about, you know, so IoT, you know, no one on earth has ever said IoT out loud. You know, if you think that market has moved forward, it hasn't even begun. So you're not it aware doesn't. of the cave drawings, uh, uh, the IoT cave drawings? Right. You know, it turns out that, you know, a circle around your head has a lot of meanings and it's not just an eye. <laughs> I don't know. But the, the, you know, this so fundamentally changes everything. You know, this is 1983 all over again, right? You know, computers inside everything, everything, you know, of, of increasing power and so forth, increasing simplicity in some cases as we get down to base functions. You know, you know, we're not, you know, making it an Intel processor, you know, running Windows, you know, turn on every light, but we're just getting down that path. You know, the entire stack of how we actually deploy and develop that is sort of unknown in the world today, right? Um, but you can see the shapes of it. Cognitive security, I can't be more a fan of this. You know, we, we have to have fundamentally, this is the good times virus all over. If in fact, you want me to help you get information to your power systems operators and someone else can get at the other end of that information channel in a Facebook group or anything at any point in the future and convince them that downtown just blew up, then they'll take actions based on that. A few months ago when stadiums were still a thing, I would use this example. So you have a concert in a, in a stadium and someone puts in a Facebook group, you know, hey, moms, dads, you know, if your kids are at the concert, you know, text them. Don't, you know, tell them not to say anything to anybody else, but there's something terrible about to happen. Tell them to walk to the exits. Everybody else starts walking, tell them to run, you know. Now I've used a cognitive tool to use a cyber means to get a physical end. Right. So putting this, we're coming to, I think, 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go a little Tolkien, right? This is the third, third age, you know, we're rounding things out. You know, we've got a lot of the infrastructure. We've got all the structures, you know, we're not done, you know, the next several decades will be an interesting confluence of things from Sun Tzu, you know, and so forth that we've known for thousands of years. And a relatively mature cybersecurity market uh, industry now, a very mature operational technology market, um, all coming together. Yeah, yeah, confluence and convergence; those words are very powerful words when you really think about all the things you know coming together. And and uh, I share your your view on that. I hope uh, you know to borrow again from Tolkien, you're not getting ready to get on a ship and sail to the west and say good luck, everybody. But uh, <laughs> or the east, I forget which direction they say. I think it was west. <laughs> it was west. I, Lord knows I should know that, but I'm not gonna get roasted. I, I should do. I, I I consumed enough of that material early on. Now comes my favorite part of any of these shows, which is the uh, Pivot questionnaire. So if you've ever watched Inside the Actor Studio, it's a long-running show. It was hosted by James Lipton for many, many years, for decades, actually. Uh, he unfortunately has passed. Uh, I believe the show is still ongoing. But he always ended the show with the Pivot questionnaire, which he borrowed from a French show that had run before uh, Inside the Actor Studio. So I think we're, we're following good footsteps to kind of borrow the same questionnaire uh, and ask uh, the questionnaire of our guests. So are you ready to go, Chris? Fire away. Okay, what is your favorite word? Hack. What is your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Things that can work to make a difference. You know, fundamental changes. What turns you off? Uh, pessimism. Cynicism. What is your favorite curse word? Favorite curse word? <laughs> Fuck. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of water. What sound or noise do you hate? Not much. Fingernails on chalkboard. Why not? What profession other than their, other than your own do you would you like to attempt? Landscaping. Again, still. What profession would you like to not do? Sales. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well done. Well, thank you, Chris Flask, Global Director of Industrial and IoT Security at Unisys, man of many talents and many projects, a, a full of passion and uh, a great contributor to our cybersecurity community. Uh, thank you for everything you've done and thank you for being on the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Derek.